2006, October 30th. Today is Lecture 27, Deep Time, the Age of the Earth, which will begin in just a moment. The, uh, the podcasts continue to be fairly popular. I've been getting a lot of fan mail from the UK for some reason, uh, listeners in Scotland and England, so I'll give a little shout-out to them this morning. Um, we have been, so far, we have been in the top 25 of the educational podcasts and iTunes site for about two weeks. Kind of cool. So, uh, seems to be getting some attention. It's an interesting medium. I had done the experiment in 162, and its usefulness as, a, as an outreach medium is quite remarkable. So, I'm, I'm keeping, keeping doing it. I think there's only about two or three other professors here at the university who use this as a, a teaching tool. And all the students seem to find it rather useful. Anyway, we should bring up today's lecture. So we're starting a new unit. We are finally, after all these weeks of fussing around with history and light and gravity and things like that, we're finally getting around to talking about the solar system, which is the main topic of this class. And the remainder of the class will be an exploration of the solar system. And what better place to begin that exploration than on our own home planet, the Earth? So today and this week, we're going to be concentrating on the Earth and Moon as a planet. Or moon is really sort of a mini planet of sorts. It's not quite a dwarf planet, but it's, it's getting there. We're going to be looking at the physics of the Earth, its properties, its interior, and its atmosphere. We're going to be doing this with the Earth first to provide a basis for our discussion of the rest of the solar system. Because after all, we're going to be finding ourselves continually coming back, especially when we talk about the inner terrestrial planets, to comparisons to our own home, the only planet we can study in tremendous detail so far. Now, my normal practice has been to begin the class by asking one of those uh, little finger exercise questions, but since we're beginning a new topic today, I'm going to do something a little different. Okay, and I've done this before in previous years, so I'm going to ask you a question, but the question is going to be about me. I, I could ask the question about Cayman, but I don't want to embarrass him. So the question is this, how old am I? Now, before you make your guesses, I'm going to let you ask three questions to help inform your, your estimates. But I'll warn you, don't try to trick me into giving me your age, because that'll simply invalidate the question. So but you have three questions that kind of give you some extra information. And I may or may not answer it in a straight way, depending on how I feel. But uh, so go. Yes, sir. Who was the president when I was born? That's an attempt to trick me into, into, into giving my date. So that's, I'll give you one to give you. That's an example of what I mean of trying to trick me into it. It's a good question, but it's an attempt to trick the answer. Someone else. Yes, sir. What year did you graduate college? What year did I graduate in college? Well, I could tell you with which degree. So um, I'll give you the year 1988, but I'll let you guess which degree it refers to because I have three of them. Someone else. Hey, I don't have to play it straight. Well, I will mostly. <laughs> yes, sir. What's your favorite band? My favorite band. Oh dear. Um, I'm not sure I have one right now. I could mention a symphony orchestra I like, but uh, that probably doesn't help. That's an interesting question. I can see where you're going with. Yes. Third question. How old's your wife? How old is my wife? Oh, that's not fair. She's not here to defend herself. She's 45. She's what? <laughs> you have to listen. Um, okay. What's important is not the answers I gave you, if I gave you an answer. 
But what's important is the kind of questions. Look at the kind of questions you ask. For example, the gentleman over there asked, who was the president when I was born? What he was attempting to do was to fix me in history. By knowing something about United States history, he could actually come up with some estimate of when I was born by knowing who the presidential administration in the United States was. So that was an attempt to fix me in history. Another person asked me the age of my wife. Of course, Barbara's not here to defend herself. She is in the other building. I could probably call her. Um, I do remember, though, I don't forget her birthday. No, no, no. Not in the anniversary. Our anniversary is the summer solstice, so I can't forget. Um, really, it was an act, purely an accident. Anyway, I digress. Um, there you're trying to basically use the fact that you know something about the social development of human beings. You know that people go through various life stages at various times and often marry people of similar ages. It's not always true, but it could be. Um, other people have asked me questions for, oh, so what was the third question? Favorite bands. So you try to put me in somewhere within the society in which we live, right? So if I'd answered the Beatles or Led Zeppelin, that might, but you sort of might say, well, do I like them because that was the first rock band I got into or because that's who I like now? So it's a little bit difficult of a question to pin down. Other people in the past have asked me questions. I actually had, a, a many years ago, one of the people auditing the class was one of the campus policemen. He asked to see my driver's license, and I almost showed him. It's really reflexive, you know. Um, what you're looking for is, a, what he was looking for was a marker. He knew I carried a marker on me that gave my age. So you either try to place me in the history of the society in which I live. Oh, yeah, someone asked me when, when I graduated from college. You know about, again, various life events that seem to happen at various times in our society. You also probably, some of you who weren't asking questions, were probably spending the time looking at me. Because, after all, we all see human beings around us. We know what everyone looks like from babies to old folks. So we have some idea of the biological development in time of a person. So you can all guess my age. So now let's see some guesses. How many of you think I'm under 40? <laughs> yeah, okay, I can't. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you don't get any extra points for that. How many think I'm 41? 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, older than 50. Yeah, no one's got the guts to raise their hand on that one. I'm 45. As a matter of fact, I was born in 1961. So who was the president? Kennedy. Kennedy, very good. So I would answer John Kennedy that would have fixed my date anywhere from 1960 to 1963. So with a person, you can actually come up with a reasonably good estimate for a person's age, either by knowing I carry a driver's license with my birth date on it. It's a real one. I don't have to fake it anymore. Um, <laughs> actually, I got, I got carded last year. I, I almost kissed the woman at the girls. Thank you so much. Uh, it was just, she carded me on my birthday, and she didn't know. That was great. Um, we carry identification with us that carries a marker of the date of our birth. We can fix ourselves within... Uh, the history of the society in which we live. You can look at my face or you can look at sort of my, my person and you can say, yeah, that person looks kind of middle-age-ish, kind of 40s. So with people, it's relatively straightforward. But what if I wanted to, instead of asking about myself, I asked about the age of this building or maybe McPherson Lab or something. That's a little harder. Well, what do I do if I want to know the age of the Earth? What kind of questions do I ask in that regard? So that's where we're going to pick up today is what is the age of the earth? How do we determine the age of the earth? Well, the key, basic key idea for today is I'm going to go right to the answer. The earth is 4.5 plus or minus 0.1 billion years old as determined by radioactive isotope dating. That's the answer. Now, how you get to that answer, that's the more important question for the day. There's lots of different ways that one can estimate the age of the earth, and people have used these throughout history. I can't help it. I'm going to give a little bit of history today. 
For example, a lot of ages are based on human history itself. We'll see how those come together or why they get the numbers they do, perhaps. But before the 20th century, people broke away from the idea that human history was an indicator of the age of the Earth and began to ask, are there physical ages that do not make an appeal to history that are either consistent with or different than the estimates from cultural history? And so we'll refer to these as physical ages because they make an appeal to physical processes which play out in time and use that to, as a way to estimate the age of the Earth. Finally, we'll get to the middle, beginning of the 20th century, an effort that has taken us up to the present day, to come up with a date for the Earth by using a little atomic clock that is buried within rocks, radioactive isotope dating, which basically is a measurement of the time since that rock solidified from a molten state. And so the goal then becomes to find the oldest rocks, the oldest meteorites, the oldest moon rocks within the Earth-Moon system, and when you find the oldest, eventually you go back to where you suddenly run out of dates. And when you run out of dates, that's how you begin to fix the age of the Earth, by finding the oldest thing around. It's not the easiest way to do it, but you could do it. And that's the way it's going to work. And you have to play statistical games. I mean, that would be like trying to find out when most of you were born by asking everyone's age until I found the oldest person. And there'd be the 60-plus person in the back. Obviously, you're not all 70 years old. But that's one point out of many, you would look at the majority of the points. And that's the same technique that's used. We use lots of different methods and say, where does the method really bring us down onto the number? But to understand the idea that the Earth has an age, we have to have some conception of a beginning for the Earth. And that really gets right at the heart of that, is our conception of what I mean by the type of time that I keep. And that's a cultural convention first and foremost, as well as a physical convention. Now, there's two different ways, broadly, broadly defined, that people have managed to keep time over the centuries. One of these I'll call cyclical time. Right? This is the idea of continual cycle of rebirth, death, rebirth, death, rebirth, death, over and over again without beginning or end. In that case, it makes no sense to ask what the age of the Earth is, because it has no meaning. What you see around you for age or is where you are in that particular cycle, but you have no memory of past cycles. The other concept of time I'll call, for lack of a better word, linear time. Linear time posits that there was a distinct beginning in the past, and often it often proposes that there is a distinct ending in the future. Now, some systems of linear time are open-ended. They pose at a beginning but they place the end in the infinite future, not in any finite future. In other traditions, that end, well, the end is near. You can see the guy standing out there with the sign on the oval sometimes. Okay, But both of those are ways of linear time. If you have a definite beginning, then it begins to make sense to talk about the origin of things. So linear time is very useful for answering this question. In cyclical time, that question may not actually have any objective meaning. Let's look at cyclic time for a second. If we, cyclic time is not a crazy idea. If you look around you, if you think about the, the run of the, of the universe, you look at the universe as it plays out, cycles of seasons, cycles of time, day and night, moon phases, the generational cycle of birth, life, and death, all of those things look cyclic. They look like repeating patterns. In fact, a lot of early observational astronomy was figuring out these repeating patterns in the sky and making sense out of them. So it's quite natural that a lot of societies came up with the idea that time was, in fact, cyclic. 
Historically, for example, Hinduism and Buddhism pose at the idea of cyclic time in their various ways. Different traditions have different ways of doing it. For example, there's a story, there's lots of stories told about the Buddha, who is often asked leading questions by his acolytes, and of course the answer is supposed to either make sense, or if it's Zen Buddhism, it doesn't really make sense, but it does, until you know, the monk smacks you upside the head. Buddha was asked once what the age of the earth is, and he basically said that the question had answered in effect that the question had no meaning. It was, not a, it was not a question conducive to enlightenment, I believe was the exact quote of the phrase, or at least the common quote. The Greeks had a, a cyclic idea of time. Plato thought of a 72,000-year cycle in which there was a half-and-half half cycle, 36,000-year time of, goal, of a golden age when the gods reigned and there was peace in the world, and a 36,000-year age of disorder and chaos. Of course, Plato was trying to make a social point, and so there's little guess as to which age he thought he was living in during you know, this time of tremendous chaos in the Greek city-states. And so he posed this was actually part of a cycle. So in the Platonic view of the world, there really is no sense to the question of beginning or ending of the world as, say, the typical mythologies of, of the society actually posited. it. He simply wanted to break away from those old sort of beginning mythologies. Linear time, on the other hand, is one we're really much more familiar with. It's the idea that there is a definite beginning in the past and in many traditions, but not all, a definite ending in the future. Judaism is a very good example of the origin of a linear time system that comes to us from antiquity. It poses a past divine creation of the earth. It's the creation of the earth that's defined in the very first book of the Pentateuch, the, the, the book of, of Genesis. And it promises, in some Judaic traditions, an end of time, which, of course, was picked up by that odd little offshoot sect of Judaism we now call Christianity, um, and becomes one of the central pieces of, the, of Christian belief, which spread throughout Western Europe in the time at the beginning of the, uh, of the first century AD. Now, Christianity and Islam, both as religions, picked up this idea, because they did have a lot of their religious roots from, from Judaism, picked up this idea of linear time. But the way it's applied actually informs a lot of how people began to ask the question of whether there was an age of the earth and a beginning or not. And part of it is how one sees history. Within these traditions, within the strict orthodox version of these traditions, one sees history as a form of fulfillment. One is playing out certain prophecies that appear in the Bible or so forth, rather than a process of growth or change, a process of evolution, except perhaps an idea of change in the world that is decay from an earlier state of grace, state of... Um, perfection, and one has watched the human history play out as this fall from perfection and fall from grace, with a future end, of course, that is the return of that perfection. And that's a way that, that, that linear time was posited for much of European history. With the revival of, of Greek knowledge in the, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, a lot of ideas came in from the Greek philosophers, but we did, they, people did not imbibe this idea of cyclic time. They simply grafted on the most comfortable ideas to this concept of linear time. Because there was a conception of linear time, that gave people a, a means by which to ask the question and expect a meaningful answer of, what is the age of the Earth? Because there's a definite beginning in the past, they equate the beginning of the earth with the beginning of the entire universe, a, a literal reading, if you will, of the first book of Genesis. And from that, could then attempt to actually begin to address the question of how old the earth might be, not just simply real old, but actually try to quantify it in terms of an actual date or time for the beginning of the earth. 
Now, there were lots of efforts to do this, but really the ultimate of these was due to a man named James Usher, who lived in the 16th to early 17th centuries. He was the Protestant Archbishop of Armagh, Ireland. Um, he was a classical and biblical scholar of absolutely unquestionable repute. Now, what, what, what Usher was doing was not what people usually portray him as doing in bad astronomy and or geology books. He was not adding up the begets and begats in the book of Genesis. What he really was involved with was a whole effort in this century, the same century, by the way, that gave us the King James Bible and modern translations of the Bible into English, was seeking a critical chronology of human history. And in his conception, which was the common conception of the time, that human history was the same as the history of the earth because the creation of man came with the creation of the earth in the beginning. Now, in the year 1658, which was actually published after his death, James Usher's lifelong work on this question was published in a book called The Annals of the World, the Annalen Mundi in which he said that the date of the creation of the earth was Sunday, October 23rd in the year 4004 BC, in the Julian calendar, of course, because he wasn't going to go with that papish Gregorian calendar. But more so, what is this October 23rd? How do you figure that out? Well, he did go through various chronologies of the genealogies in the Bible, various historical records of the kingdoms that are mentioned obliquely in the Bible, Babylonian kingdoms and what was known at the time. And then he picked this date because it is the first Sunday after the vernal equinox, I'm sorry, after the autumnal equinox of the year 4004 BC on the Julian calendar. So even in this calculation, which includes history, critical text analysis, what, what Usher, one of the things that Usher did as a critical scholar was he was one of the first people to really bring the idea of critical analysis to the study of texts from antiquity, finding the forgeries from the actual things to get the right translation done. He was an, ex an outstanding scholar. It's sad that the only thing he seems to be remembered for in the 21st century is an unusually accurate estimate for the date of the creation, which appears used to appear, but I don't think does much anymore in the front pages of the King James Bible. And the Book of Common Prayer even had this for a while. But he was using, he actually tied it in a backwards way to astronomy. He wanted a particular event, the autumnal equinox, and of course he set it on Sunday, the beginning of that cycle of weeks. So buried in this is a lot of the culture that Usher was actually embedded within, and he imposed that upon the answer. Now, he wasn't the only person who sought this answer. Now, I'm going to bother to give you the numbers because they're not that much interesting to us. Johannes Kepler, Isaac Newton, a man by the name of Hevelius, who was one of the great astronomers of this period. All of them also came up with dates for the age of the Earth, using various and sundry ways to come up with that estimation. We forget that Newton, even though he wrote the Principia, spent most of his life, his actual heavy output was actually in alchemy and biblical scholarship, the latter, of latter two of which never really got published because he sort of hoarded it in his rooms. All of these dates that people come up with came in around 4000 BC. Now all these are based on a couple of central assumptions, but one central assumption stands out above all. That human history can be equated with the physical history of the earth. That if one determines a self-consistent chronology of human history and one goes back to the earliest time you can find, that the beginning of humanity also marks the beginning of the earth. That's the critical assumption. Now, one question is, why do they all get 4,000 B.C.? Why do they all get the Earth around, nowadays, around 6,000 years old? Well, there's a good reason, I think. They were using written records. The invention of writing was about 3,000 B.C., we know. 
And oral traditions have a half-life, if you will, of about a thousand years, about a millennium. It's about how long an oral, unwritten tradition can last before human memory and oral tradition distorts it beyond belief, right? Those of you who like the Lord of the Rings, you know, History becomes legend, legend becomes myth. That's a wonderful line that comes out of Tolkien. Exactly because it's exactly what oral tradition does. There comes a point where history becomes so distorted it becomes legend and eventually it becomes so distorted it becomes myth. Go to Egypt, the legend of Isis and Osiris, these two divine creatures who brought law and the making of wine to the, and, and other th- order to the Egyptian civilization. Maybe it's a distorted remembrance of a king and queen who were part of conquerors who actually brought law to Egypt, but over time they got distorted into the gods Isis and Osiris. Human history is like that, and the half-life is about a thousand years. So you follow the earliest written records back to about the third millennium BC, you follow oral tradition back one millennium, and where do you get? 4,000 BC in every case. Why? They were using written records. Of course, you're not going to get much further back than the writing horizon. But if history is older than this, you're just not going to see it, because it won't be in your records. So that's why they probably got 4,000 BC. Well, that's an interesting aside, but let's really ask the real question that needs to be asked. Is this central assumption correct? Is the assumption that human history can be equated with the physical age of the Earth correct? And the other question is, how do you test that? How do you actually begin to establish that? Well, about the time that Usher was working, sort of in the period from the 16th to the 17th centuries, In the 17th century is the rise of people like Isaac Newton, Edmund Halley, and others who are beginning to come up with a self-consistent, non-Aristotelian, physical view of the world. And so they began to ask the question in a different way by asking, are there ways to get a physical date for the Earth that does not make an appeal to human history? And when we do that, do we get the same answer or do we get a different answer? So they didn't simply reject the idea because they came within a culture that fully embraced this assumption. But the question is, does that assumption stand up to scrutiny when you look at methods that do not rely on an appeal to history? Like I said, Edmund Halley's one of my heroes. He's one of these unsung people in, this, in sciences who really did a tremendous amount. And one of the things Halley did, in addition to comets and making Newton publish the Principia, was he came up with one of the first recorded physical estimates for the age of the Earth. And his reasoning went as follows. He was looking for a a physical process that shows a definite change in time. And what he noticed was that rain hitting the earth flows into river basins. These river basins wash into the oceans, and river water always goes into the oceans. But furthermore, if you follow a river's course, up near the source of a river, the water is pretty clean, pretty pure. But as you get further and further towards the mouth of the ocean, salts get leached out of the rocks in the riverbed, and the water gets progressively more salty until eventually you get into the salty ocean itself. So Halley proposed the following, that rivers wash salts from the the land into the oceans. These salts accumulate in the ocean, making the ocean salty. So imagine, he said, that you started out with all of the oceans being fresh water. Evaporation of water comes up, rains on the land, slowly washes salts in. Over time, the concentration of salt would increase in the oceans, until you reach the concentration levels today. So he asked the question, how much time would it be required to start with oceans that are initially pure fresh water and get to the level of current salinity if their method of getting salts was simply washing of salts out of rocks by rivers on land? So he had to estimate the volume of the flow of various rivers, the amount of salts that are flushed out of rocks, 
the volume of the ocean and ask, how much time do you have to accumulate this before you can do it? If it's a few thousand years, then the ocean would be fresh. If the Earth was only a few thousand years old, 4,000, 5,000 at the time of Halley, the oceans would still be fresh. There would not yet be enough time to make them salty. However, if the, and the other part of it is, well, what if the Earth is infinitely old? We said, well, that's ridiculous, because if that was the case, then the oceans would be so saturated with salt, they'd be like the Dead Sea. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Israel or the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Extremely supersaturated concentrations of salt. Imagine that the oceans were like that. If this was the mechanism for doing this, the oceans would be salty if the Earth was very, very old. So Halley was making the point that the Earth could not be super young, but neither could it be super old if this mechanism was correct. Now, there was a, a, an Irish geologist named John Jolie who in the 1890s redid Halley's computation in detail and said that the age of the Earth, the time needed to go from fresh water to current salinity using a modern estimate of volumes of rivers and so on and so forth is between 80 and 90 million years. Now, this, of course, the assumptions behind this turn out to have a lot of problems. Number one is ocean salinity doesn't work that way. Number two is there are lots of processes that both raise and lower ocean salinity without even appeal to rivers. It's a complex chemistry going on. But if you can actually do the calculation, you get a huge number. And you actually begin to rule out few thousand-year-old Earths by doing this. Now, it's, again, the basis of the calculation can be invalidated very easily, but the idea behind it is there. Can one make an appeal to a physical process which plays out in time, something that accumulates or something that goes away, and use that to estimate time? And that's what Halley did. Now, a contemporary, a later contemporary of Halley was a Frenchman by the name of Georges-Louis Leclerc, who was the Comte de Buffon. He lived from 1707 to, to 1788. He was a naturalist and geologist. Naturalist at that time is generally a scientist of various kinds. He decided to base his age upon the following assumption. Imagine that the Earth started out in a hot, molten state and cooled and solidified to the current temperature that we see today. This is basically the molten beginning. The question he began to ask is, how long would it take a molten Earth to cool to the t Earth temperature we have today? And he, the way he guessed it was he took iron spheres, heated them up in a forge on his, on his estate, and then would test how long it took them to cool. Different sizes, different compositions, time their cooling, and then scale that up to the age of the Earth. There's a rather uh, nice, you know, sort of charming story told about he was a member of the upper class society of, of France. He died, luckily, just before the revolution. Um, he talks about how the fact that his hands were so, sort of also calloused and everything from all his work in the forge, which is unusual for a nobleman of the time, that he had the various young ladies who were visiting him because their hands were so delicate were the best to be used for measuring when it was cool enough to touch. Well, whatever. Anyway. Um, when you scale up the cannonballs to Earth size and do the calculation, he, gets a, he got an age of about 75,000 years. And in posthumous work, he actually re redid that estimate on what the actual transport of heat might really be like through these things by studying various things with iron bars. And had he actually lived past the year 1788, would probably have revised that estimate upward to a few million years. But still, overall what he's doing is he's positing a physical process. The Earth starts out molten. It's currently cool. How long does it take to get in that state? And they're getting really long ages. They're getting numbers at tens of thousands up to millions of years for basic physical processes you think occur. 
There's still residual heat in the earth. There's still a molten interior for volcanism. How long does it take for just the outer crust to cool? Now, Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, who's responsible for the Kelvin scale, by the year 1897, revised this estimate to be between 20 and 40 million years. Kelvin was also doing an estimate based on a molten earth. And so he said, how long would it take to cool to the present state? 20 to 40 million years. But of course, Kelvin didn't know one important thing is, what if there are other processes at work that keep the interior warmer than it would be if there were no other sources of heat than just initial heat? That's why they got a number between 20 and 40 million years. But still, the time scales are long. These are slow processes on a large Earth. Well, this whole idea that time is deep began to take a lodgment in the 18th century, and it really belongs to the work of two people, James Hutton and the next person we're going to meet, Charles Lyell. James Hutton wrote a book in the year 1795 called The Theory of the Earth, and Hutton really deserves the, word as, uh, the, the name of the father of modern, modern geology. What he did was he described the Earth's history in a little different way. Most people thought of the Earth as initially cooling out of initial molten state. There's a definite point of the beginning of the Earth, and then everything we see of Earth's history is a steady erosion and decay of the Earth. Everything we see is going from whatever it was to decayed into the place we see. But what Hutton found when he examined the geology of his native Scotland was, in fact, there was not sign there was an initial state which was simply being decayed to the present. But it was much more complicated than that. There were obviously cycles in the rock of repeated uplift followed by periods of decay, as if the Earth's surface had renewed itself in various ways. He introduced the idea of repair into geologic history. You have an old eroded terrain, suddenly a volcano goes off and builds new land on top of that, and then over time even that begins to erode away. You can see young shield volcanoes, and you can see old ancient eroded volcanoes on the same continent. The previous idea, as I said, was an idea of decay from an initial creation. Everything happened at one place, and everything that's happened since is simply destruction of the initial creation. What he shows is the idea of repair. However, this led him in two directions. One was to say, well, the Earth had to be millions of years old to have multiple cycles of this creation, of this creation and decay, or if you will, repair and, and, and um, repair and erosion, uplift and erosion. But because the repair erases the past cycle, you can never be sure how many cycles went on before. So here is this little idea from cyclic time working its way back into linear time. Hutton provided a way to see that time was deep geologically in millions of years, but then shut the door on your ability to use that to date the Earth because he felt that the repair would erase the previous cycle. So it's this odd thing where he has a linear time, but in, buried in that is kind of this geologic cycle in which there's no province of a beginning and no hope of determining a, a future. So Hutton sort of slightly opened the door and then slams it shut. But Hutton only got it partially right. Here's the famous one of the famous geologic features that Hutton found. It's called a Hutton disconformity. This is actually on the Scottish coast here. You see a stratum that's lying down roughly horizontally and then a vertical stratum here, which is lying underneath it. And this is part of where the land has been literally pushed up. These sediments have been pushed up and jumbled over. And you can see this in various places where you see cycles of uplift and repair. And these Hutton deconformities are what led Hutton to this review, this view that he found just by looking at the geology of Scotland. 
Well, coming after Hutton in the late 19, late 17, late 18th, early through the 19th centuries, is the man Charles Lyell. He wrote a book called The Principles of Geology, which was so successful as a geology textbook it went through 11 editions between 1830 and 1872. It was a real, real winner. What Lyell did was introduce the idea of stratigraphic ages. That he said that Hutton basically was being too pessimistic about erasure of history. In fact, the history is recorded in the different strata of different kind of rocks. You might see marine sediments laid down. For example, the land may have once been an ocean floor, and then a volcano might have gone off and laid down a layer of volcanic rock on top of that, and then the ocean comes back and there's another layer of sediment. And so when you dig into the earth, you see the earth's history laid out, kind of like the layers in a layer cake, remind you of how the cake was assembled of the various components. Furthermore, if you use the different strata of the different types of rock, you can relate one stratum in one place to a stratum in a completely different area by finding the same mixes of minerals and, and chemical content in there. They know something about what was going on on the Earth during that period. And so you can use that to roughly date things that you find within it. He also introduced the idea of using the fossil record that is locked within those rocks to give you some idea of the date. So if you see two different strata in widely separated places, but they have, you know, exactly the same species of saber-toothed mouse or whatever inside of them, that's a hint that those strata were laid down during the same geologic period using biological fossil markers from those same sizes. And the combination of the rock content and the fossil content lets you set the relative ages. So even though there were cycles of uplift and repair, they do bear some memory as to what the Earth was like at the period when those cycles occurred. And so that Hutton was in fact wrong. You can read the history of the Earth in these various strata. The cycles of uplift and repair do not erase that history completely. They do not obliterate it. In fact, if anything, they freeze it in place for you and nicely lay it out for you to look at if you just take care. And that's what Lyell really, really brought to this. Now. He noticed that old rocks were just like young rocks. If you found an old, old stratum quartz and a young stratum quartz, they're essentially identical structures. But life within those structures shows tremendous variation. And that's what gave him the idea that time must be very deep. And he concluded from this and the various timing of cycles that it must be cycles of many millions of years. But it was very difficult to be more quantitative than that because you don't, you know, basically saber-toothed mice or whatever don't carry watches on them that freeze at the moment the rock was laid down. So it's hard to do more than relative aging, but getting an absolute date is a little bit elusive in this particular way of looking at things. But it allows you to at least distinguish an old rock from a young rock based on its surroundings. Now if you could find some way that may be embedded within the rock itself, there really are differences, maybe you can exploit those. And Lyell had it only partially right. Rocks do contain elements that change, and for that we have to jump ahead to the 20th century and Ernst Rutherford and radioactivity. We saw last week that atoms do change because some atoms have too many or too few neutrons in their nuclei, and they decay into other forms. When they decay into other forms, they turn into other chemical forms. And that is going to be our clock. Now what Rutherford considered, and this was brought, picked up again by scientists of the 20th century, is consider a rock that solidified containing two different isotopes of uranium. Uranium-238 and uranium-235. 235, by the way, is the bomb uranium that's getting everyone all twitched out about, say, North Korea and Iran right now. 
238 is the largest naturally occurring uranium isotope. But 235 does occur naturally in smaller proportions. Both of these have too many neutrons. These nuclei are unstable. Uranium-238 decays into a lead-206, a lead isotope, with a half-life of four and a half billion years. Uranium-235 turns into a lead-207, a different isotope of lead, one neutron different, with a half-life of 710 million years. Now, both of these lead isotopes are stable, so once the uranium turns into lead, that's the end of the chain. There's no more transformation going on. So if you start out with certain proportions of uranium-238 and 235, and you lock it up in a rock, and then you watch over time, you will see that uranium slowly turning into lead. But because there's two different isotopes with two different half-life timescales, you get different proportions of lead in there. So over time, if you let the rock sit there untouched, you'll get less uranium-238. But because the half-life of uranium-235 is shorter, you get even less uranium-235. But uh, the uranium-238 and 235 is locked in the rock, so too the products of that radioactive decay, the lead, are locked in the rock. So if you watch the rock over a long time, you would see the amount of lead in the rock increase steadily, but there would be different isotopic proportions because you're accumulating lead-207 faster than lead-206, because the parent, uranium-235, decays faster than uranium-238, the parent of lead-206. <coughs> That's a lot of words. Let's just make a picture. Imagine that we fill an hourglass, if you will, an atomic hourglass, four and a half billion years ago. And I have equal amounts of uranium-238 and uranium-235, and I contrive equal amounts of 206 lead and 207 lead. It's a contrivance, but it illustrates the point. Then I wait four and a half billion years, and I look again. Well, four and a half billion years is one half-life of uranium-238, and so half of the uranium-238 is left, and the other half has become lead-206. However, uranium-235 has a 400 million year half-life, which means in 451, I'm sorry, yeah, 450, four and a half billion years, it has gone through six and a third half-lives. That means it's halved six times. So there's only 1.2% of the original uranium-235 left, and all of it is all the rest of it, the other 98.8%, has turned into lead-207. So if I saw rock that had just been mixed, I would see equal amounts of lead and uranium. But if I saw a 4.5 billion-year-old version of that rock, I'd see a whole bunch of 238 and not much 235. And I'd see a little bit of lead 206 and a whole bunch of lead 207. And if I knew what the parent looked like, I would know how old that rock is by measuring the proportions. And that's exactly how this works. The uranium is the clock, right? The radioactive isotopes are the clock. They get locked in when the rock solidifies in their various chemical proportions from the parent material. And then, as they decay, their products of decay stay locked in the rock. Why does that matter? Uranium and lead are chemically distinct. The chemical reactions that bond uranium to certain types of minerals do not bind lead. The only way the lead could get into that mineral is if it was made in place by uranium decay. And not just uranium and lead. That was the obvious one that Rutherford and others picked up on. There are lots of isotopes. We don't just use one person in the room to average the age date. 
Uranium, 238 and 235, as I mentioned, at 4.5 and 700 million year half-lives, respectively. Rubidium, 87, turns into strontium, 87, with a 50 billion year half-life. It's a low-activity element. Potassium, 40, good old potassium, is radioactive. Uh, the, the radioactive, the version what we normally eat is not radioactive, but some, one, some form of potassium is, in fact, radioactive. Potassium, 40, it decays into argon, 40, with a half-life of 1.3 billion years. Argon is a, I'll just sort of jump ahead, is a noble gas. It doesn't chemically react with anything. Whereas potassium forms all kinds of salts, right? If you take sea salt from your jar in the kitchen or regular salt, it has some combination of potassium chloride as well as sodium chloride. So if you see argon in a mineral, the only way it's going to get there is if it came from potassium-40 that was originally in that mineral. And it's got a half-life of 1.3 billion years. These are the four main clocks. There are lots of others. You compare the different ones. Long, slow clocks, short, fast clocks. And you look for a consistent number to come out of all of these. So you do detailed isotope ratios inside of crystalline inclusions, things that have been chemically locked within the rock and are found in minerals they do not chemically belong in, the products of the radioactive decay within those rocks. You exploit the chemical differences. You exploit the isotopic differences, the fact that the isotopic ratio of an ancient rock is going to be different than a young rock because the ancient rock has had times to scramble its isotope ratios due to radioactive decay where the young rock is not. It's a very detailed process. It's very, very difficult. But when you carry it through to the end, you get an answer. Now, what we can measure is once you make a rock, you solidify it, you lock in the elements. They don't get in. They don't get out. Other elements are kept out. And the products of the decay are also locked in. So that's how this me- what you're going to measure is not the age of the Earth you're going to measure the time since that particular rock that you're holding in your hand was last molten. Because when the rock goes molten, you reset the clock. You mix all the elements up. Chemical reactions scrub out the chemicals that aren't supposed to be there. (coughs) The lead goes and reacts with things that react into lead minerals. The uranium reacts with uranium minerals. And the clock is reset. So the radioactive age dating dates the age since the rock was solidified, not the date when those atoms were made. That's a big difference. Okay? So radioactive age dating, bottom line, measures the time since that rock solidified. So now if you want to use radioactive age dating to date the Earth, the goal becomes fairly straightforward, if somewhat challenging. You have to find the oldest rocks on Earth. So you begin to search back through the ages of rock, and you'll notice at some point you never find any older rocks. And that becomes the first rock that solidified upon the Earth, and we define the time of solidification, the first solidification of the Earth, to be its age. So the problem is exacerbated by the fact that the Earth is geologically active. Hutton was telling us that the surface is regularly uplifted, repaired, volcanic melting, and stuff like that. Surface rocks are constantly being melted. The surface is constantly being repaved by volcanism and the process of plate tectonics that we're going to meet tomorrow. In fact, if you go out to Colorado, I spent some time this summer in the Colorado with my wife when she was at the Aspen School for Physics. The Rockies are beautiful mountains. They're only 60 million years old. So if I picked up a rock to throw at a bear, which I didn't do. I don't throw rocks at bears. That just makes them mad. I would be picking up at most a 60 million year old rock. Most of the crust of the Earth, in fact, is less than 100 million years. So Hutton had it partially right. 
There is some erasure of the Earth's history because once you melt the rock, you reset the clock. But not all of the Earth. Most of the crust is less than 100 million years, but not all of it. It turns out that there are some very interesting stable places on the Earth, and they're called the continental shields. There are these places right in the middle of big tectonic plates that have never been repaved. And we can find them by looking for the oldest rocks. There are two of them that I can mention. The Australian shield in the middle of the Australian continent has rock 4.3 billion years old. The Canadian shield just up north here, and the Canadian shield is almost 4 billion years old, 3.96 billion years old. The other place we can look for old rocks is on the moon. We brought back a few hundred kilos of rocks from the Apollo and Lunahod missions from the Soviets. We can radioactive age date some of the moon rocks. Every now and then, meteorites fall to the Earth. They aren't completely melted by their passage to, through the Earth's atmosphere. You can crack them open to get to the unmelted interiors and measure their ages as well. So we find the oldest rock in the solar system to try to date the age of the Earth. The oldest surface rocks we know of on the Earth are about 4.3 billion years old. So that at least is a time for the solidification of the Earth is around 4.3 billion years. Moon and meteor rocks are older still. They get up to about 4.5 billion years old with a spread in ages of about 100 million years. This 100 million year spread is actually bigger than the intrinsic precision of the me measurement technique. The technique is actually good to about 10, 20 million years precision on the long time scales. So that tells you the spread is real. In fact, what it is is telling you that the solar system formed rapidly, but it formed over about a 100 million year period. So we can actually see the steady formation of the solar system in the rock, moon rock, and meteorite record. The best estimate currently of the age of the Earth, the conservative estimate, is 4.5 plus or minus 0.1 billion years. We know it to about 100 million years. That 100 million years considers formation uncertainty, some details of formation of the Earth. The more precise number is 4.55 plus or minus 0.02 for the oldest meteorites. So this gives us the age of the Earth from radioactive age dating. Time is very, very deep. We have a lot of time to work with on the Earth on the Earth's history. This is going to have impacts, especially when we talk about what we can expect for the interior of the Earth and what we can learn about the atmosphere of the Earth. And that will be the topic of the next two lectures.